0: of the schools and the reporter was like yeah that's the story of a lot in the bible and i think sometimes we think of the bible as nice safe document and it's like this is the holy bible it's safe and clean and pure and it is but it's also very messy if you read the story of it, and not every story is nice and black and white and when it comes to sex the bible isn't always pg or pg13 or R, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it's, it's pushing to the X training.
1: Um, now, I was raised
0: in very conservative churches where just saying the word sex was a dirty word. I remember one time in Tennessee, I was preaching and I just mentioned sex, I literally, my comment was, God needs to be the God of your pocketbook, of your politics, and even of your sexuality. That's all I said, and I went on with the rest of my message. Afterwards, I had a mom corner me in the back of the church and she was furious with me because I used the word sex in church where her 12-year-old daughter was there. And she said, my daughter has never heard that word before. I can't believe that you would use that in the sermon. And uh, I said, do you have a TV in your house? Do you have the internet? And she was like, yes. I'm like, "She probably heard that word before. And if she hasn't, wouldn't you rather your daughter hear that word first in church rather than on television or online? Not talking about sex doesn't mean it goes away. I think the church needs to be more upfront and honest instead of trying to avoid some of these conversations. Um, Looking back, what I wish I had asked that mom was, do you let your daughter read the Bible? Because there's a lot of sex in it. There's a lot of stuff that is very difficult to read. I think in an attempt to present biblical sexuality for a culture, the church has reduced it down to a few talking points that dramatically miss the nuance of scripture. The Bible doesn't have the same Victorian ideals about sexuality that the English translators did. And in some cases, if you read the Bible in the original languages, you find some of these stories we're going to talk about today much more graphic in their original languages. We've really toned them down in English. Now, growing up, this seemed to be the big message. If sex came up in church, this is pretty much the message I heard all the time of. Sex is bad. Sex is bad. That's all I ever heard. Darby and I both grew up in churches with youth groups, and it seemed like the only message I ever received every Wednesday when I went to youth group was, Sex is bad. Sex is bad. I would love to hear about something else besides that. That's all I ever heard. Um, I would often hear messages about sex being like super glue, be careful who you get stuck to. Or sex being like a present, don't ruin that gift, it was meant for your spouse, you wouldn't want to open someone else's present. (laughs) Words like dirty, ruined, and destroyed were tossed around constantly. And I kind of grew up as a young adult, and anytime I heard sex, alarm bells went off. Because I had spent years and years and years being programmed, sex is bad. Sex is dangerous. Sex is something to feel ashamed about or guilty. It's something hazardous. But if you read a little bit of the Bible, you quickly find that the subject is a lot more complicated than our churches try to make it out to be. There's a lot of stories with really weird gray areas. Good people in the Bible repeatedly make bad sexual choices. And a bad sexual choice, apparently according to biblical narratives, doesn't make you dirty for life. A lot of the Bible reads like an episode of Game of Thrones. Um, I've said it previously, but some parts of the Bible are more Game of Thrones than Game of Thrones. Anybody familiar <laughs> with Game of Thrones? It's a highly graphic, sexualized, violent HBO show that's highly popular in culture. And it's um, some Christian friends that I knew were really railing against it. And I was like, have you read some of these stories in the Bible? Like, it reads like a, a biblical story. Um, so today, I want to play a new game show I created with you. Is it Bible or is it Game of Thrones? Okay. Anybody excited? Nobody's excited, but we're, we're playing like Um, Now, I've we have some younger folks in here. These are stories in the Bible, and I will try to be as PG as I can be. Okay. First story. You tell me if it's from the HBO show Game of Thrones or if it's from the Bible. A man pretends that his wife is his sister and offers her up to rulers and kings in order to get favor and riches from them. That's the Bible That's Abraham, right? Okay. A guy takes a woman from an enemy country openly into his, um, into his home and begins to sleep with her. And the leaders of the country say this is such an act of treason that they go in and kill them both together while they're in the act. Bible, yeah, that's numbers 25, 6 through 8. Um, we talked about the story of lot, you already know that one. How about this one? A daughter-in-law dresses like a prostitute to get her father-in-law to sleep with her to be sure that she has a family heir. A Bible. Yeah, that's in Genesis 38, 15 through 16. Um, how about this? I will not go into the detail, but a man goes to graphically disturbing lens to be sure he doesn't impregnate his brother's widow when it's his job to carry on a family life. That's the Bible. Genesis 38, 10 I'll let you read about why it's so graphic. Um, how about this one? A woman sneaks into where a man is sleeping and uncovers his robe and lays down next to him. That's Bible. Yeah, that's Ruth and Boaz. How about this one? A hero of his nation, blessed by God, spends most of his time in brothels and most of his time with prostitutes. Samson. That's Samson. That's the Bible. You're getting a, you're getting a picture here. I didn't put any game on it here. It's all Bible. Okay? I could go on and on. There's princes who rape their sisters, princes who. build build a bed on top of a palace and sleep with all their dad's wives. There's a king who goes up on the rooftop and watch women bathe at night. Um, In the New Testament, Paul writes to the church at Corinth and he says, you're celebrating a man sleeping with his stepmom," And he's like, you should be condemning that, not celebrating. That's the Bible. I would love for it to just be like all simple black and white, and man, it's got some disturbing stories in it. And then, of course, there's Song of Solomon. (laughs) The Song of Solomon is a rollicking love song, a love poem that church hasn't been sure what to do with since the Middle Ages. Now, some have argued that it's a love poem between Solomon and his wife. Maybe, but Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. If you had 700 wives and and he gave one an anniversary card and he didn't sign her name on it, uh, if you know she's going to assume it wasn't meant for her, where you're giving the same card to your other wives too, he never names the name of the wife here, so it's, it doesn't seem as sweet as you think it is when you're like, oh, he wrote it to his wife. Which one? <laughs> um, others have argued that it's Christ speaking to the church, that's, I think that's a good argument. However, the highly sexual language of the book just makes me all the more comfortable if this is Jesus talking to me. Now, just listen to the words of God here in the Song of Solomon chapter 4. We're going to read verse 5, 11, and 16. We'll see if I can get through this without blushing too much. But this is the word of God. This is the Bible. Verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Verse 11, your lips drip... Nectar, my bride, honey and milk are under your tongue. Verse 16, let your beloved come to his garden and eat of its choicest fruits. Um man, you think sitcoms of innuendo? Have you read the Bible? Like it's got innuendo in it. I could go on and on in chapter four, but I like being your pastor and I don't want any of you to go to me. <laughs> so I'm not gonna read any more of that portion of the Bible up front. Um when I was in Bible college, I think we have a picture of me in Bible college. What a nerd. I was really in the small in college, so I wore a Superman shirt all the time. This was my profile pic. Facebook had just come out, so that's how old I am. And this was my Facebook pic. It was only for colleges at the time. And uh, this was my profile pic. And I just couldn't figure out why girls wouldn't go out with me. Like, I had little wolves. Notice the soul pack. Yeah. And the Superman shirt I wore all the time. And I'm wearing one of those little surfer leather necklaces. I don't know why. I thought it was cool. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, when I was in Bible college, I took a course called Old Testament Survey. We had to read all the books of the Old Testament, and then we had to talk about their amazing themes and amazing content. It was a great class. I also took New Testament Survey and many other classes. But in the Old Testament Survey, we had to read all the books of the Old Testament before we came to them in our class. And we would have to keep a reading lock of, like, here's when I read this, here's questions and thoughts I had. And we had to turn it into the professor to uh, get a certain percentage of our grade. Now, when it came to read time to read Song of Solomon, he stood up in class and he said, hey, you can skip this one. He's like, it won't affect your grade at all. But he's like, I don't want you to lust. And so it's okay to skip this one. And I remember thinking, first of all, The people who never read books of the Bible in this class are suddenly going to read that one, so that's kind of genius. But, also, you know church has a weird relationship with sex when reading a holy book that defines your religion is in danger of making you sick. And I think somewhere we've got some weird ideas where we're so scared of sexuality, to some degree, that we're scared to even read parts of the Bible. So you might say, Alice, why do we care about this? Why is this even a part of this four-week series? I know some of you are like, is it the fourth weekend? Can we talk about something else? I'm sick of talking about this. I know that's how I feel if no one else feels that way. <laughs> Here's why I think this is important. Often when church is clashing with culture over sexuality, we're using the Bible to do it. But I'm not sure we're always using the Bible correctly. We often read our own sexual agenda into the text instead of figuring out what the original authors were trying to say and we can do this with a Victorian sense of shame when we read the text or we can read it with a progressive view that reads sexual undertones into every cultural exchange we come across. Our culture has taught us to read sexual tension into every scenario. We watch television, we read a story, and we're like, ooh, there's is sexual sparks right there. Like, that's how we've been set up. We see that everywhere. To assume that sex is always everyone's motivation. That's how our culture thinks. But I find that the church also makes a mistake and often finds a way to teach lessons about sexuality that the original authors of Scripture never anticipated being caught out of that passage. So let me give you an example, okay? Growing up in and around churches, I heard a lot about modesty. Anybody else? Uh, it was like if they weren't talking about sex in youth group they were talking about modesty and i remember going to a church full party anybody remember those and you know what that meant? you had to wear a long black t-shirt to hide any of your food. because that is not modest a uh, girl's especially had to wear a long black t-shirt to be modest because that's biblical right it's the biblical way of wearing a long black t-shirt a woman According to what I heard growing up, has a responsibility not to make a man lust after her body. It's on the burden's on her. But actually, that's a sexual viewpoint that's being read into the text. Most people in the first century dressed exactly the same way, and so it's not like, oh, like hey, don't wear those clothes. Make sure you wear a long black T-shirt. He didn't even have a category for that. Uh, the New Testament authors, when they talk about modesty, weren't talking about clothes. Here's Paul and the passage we're about to read, but Peter says almost the exact same thing in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4. This is Paul writing to 1 Timothy, or to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. This is what he says. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, like adorning, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So it's pretty obvious what it says here, right? Men stop arguing and bickering and start praying. And women stop wearing juicy swimsuits and focus on doing good deeds, right? That's the message I heard all the time in church. In fact, they like to talk about, verse 9 and 10, about what the women are supposed to do. I would have never heard them talk about stop bickering and arguing and that the men should be praying. They didn't even deal with it. They're like, eh, men are going to pray. We'll deal with this one instead. But even a cursory reading of this passage makes it clear that Paul is not saying, oh, make sure you're wearing a long black t-shirt to cover everything. He's making it clear that his concern is about financial modesty. That's what it meant in an ancient sense. Modesty was about your finances, not showing off, not flaunting your wealth. He's saying what people should notice about you is not how rich you are, but how good you are, how much good deeds you do. I've heard many pastors and youth leaders turn to this verse to remind women not to make their male friends lust. But that's not a woman's job to control men's minds. That's not what the Bible teaches. You have to read that into the text. If you come to the Bible with a Victorian view of sexuality, you can make some presuppositions from this text and try to make it say that the modesty here is not talking about your type of clothes, but about whether or not your clothes look wealthy or not. I remember in churches growing up, I heard this constantly. I heard it even as I sat in, as I became a young minister, and I sat in with senior ministers doing marriage counseling with couples. I heard them say this over and over and over again. They said, "Um, men are visual and women are emotional. I heard this language used in the pulpit and in marriage counseling, and I heard it so often, I assumed it was true. It was a biblical idea. But not only is it not found anywhere in scripture, modern neuroscience tells us it simply isn't true. Both men and women are wired to be both visual and emotive creatures. Coming to the text, though, with a Victorian mindset of sexuality means that it awakes a presupposition about men who makes a presupposition about women, and you'll take scripture that was never intended to say one thing and make it say something that'll lead to a lot of burdens and baggage and pain. Sometimes Christians say stupid things that they think is a biblical idea, and it's actually more like something that they have heard in church so often that they confuse it with scripture. Do you know NFL legend Mike Dinkham? He's my uh, mustache brother from Another mother. Anyway, honestly, when I first saw this quote, and it's says uh, Mike Dinka, I thought it was Steve Dinka, the comic book artist, that tells you everything I think mean, you need to know about how much I know about This is what he said in an interview once. To quote the Bible, this too shall pass. Anybody know where that's found in the Bible? It's not found in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, but it's found that something's in the Bible, Right? And um, just because it sounds like it in the Bible doesn't mean that it is. Neither is God works in mysterious ways. That's not in the Bible. Or ask Jesus into your heart. Or God helps those who help themselves. There's things that we've many times heard so often around the church that we just assume that's in the Bible. Rabbi Ronnie Shapiro said this: Most people who profess a deep love of the Bible have never actually read the book. They have memorized parts of the text that they can string together to prove the biblical basis for whatever it is they believe in, but they ignore the vast majority of the text. Now, it would be simple if the Bible were like, this: you flip it open, it's like, flip open to the sex chapter. And then it's like, everything on this side is sexually okay. And here are the circumstances that you can do it under. Over here is a list of everything that's sexually not okay. And any special exceptions. And then it would be great if the rest of the bible was filled, filled with heroes of the faith and they all avoided the no-no stuff and they only did the good stuff but that's not the bible that we have like that's not how the bible reads that's not how the bible works and that can be frustrating and our tendency can be to try to fill in the gaps but when we do that there's a danger there when we fill in the gaps often we'll do it with our own preconceptions about sex Our own presuppositions and our own baggage and try to impose that on others the bible is pretty realistic about the human condition it shows stories about real humans making real mistakes living in the real world and some of the best heroes in it have sexual mistakes the bible is pretty clear about presenting negative narrative consequences when sex is outside of committed covenantal relationships but it just rarely fits into the tiny little habits of morality we'd like it to uh, she went before in a book, "The Great Sex Rescue. It has a tagline the lies you've been taught and how to recover what God intended. Uh, in her book, she conducted surveys with over 18,000 highly religious Christian women in the U.S., and the results were staggering. Uh, the results say that American Christian women are, are less sexually fulfilled than non-religious women in culture, and a majority of them said sex was painful or unpleasant, and they only did it because church the maniac. She makes it clear though in her book that she doesn't think this is because of what's in the Bible but instead because of what is taught in churches like it was in the Bible. Because the majority of religious ministers in the U.S. are male the sexual narratives from churches and from pulpits have been predominantly taught and mistaught from a male point of view. Here's a quote from her book. Intimate sex requires that you feel as if your spouse values you, not just what you can give them, but really values you for who you are. I'm afraid growing up in church and sitting in on marriage counseling and on uh, small groups and Sunday school classes and trainings, I'm afraid that's rarely the message that I have heard to women from churches. And sadly, that's not the message tens of thousands of Christian women who hear across the country in our churches this weekend. It's easy to say the church has it right and culture has it wrong. But a lot of times, culture has it wrong. But sometimes, church has it wrong too. Church is only right when they align with God, not necessarily their traditions or their memory of conservative culture. Copernicus. Anybody familiar with Copernicus? He was one of the guys who authorized the theory that the earth was not the center of the universe. Only, problem, the church taught that the earth was the center of the universe. And he was a very good Christian. And he's like, I'm looking through my telescope, and the earth isn't at the center. But he's like, but everything I've been told to believe says the earth is the center. And so he had this crisis of faith. So he wrote this book about his findings, and he's like, I'm not going to publish it. I can't deny my faith. And he eventually said, you know what, this is truth. I have to put it out there. And he felt all this guilt. And anyways, he ended up publishing his book, and the church, because it misinterpreted some verses, had extra, extrapolated a position that the earth was the center of everything. And when he published his book, they um, kicked him out of the church. They banned his book. They burned his book. And then years later, the church was like, oh, yeah, we were all. The church had a position that wasn't biblical, but was misinformed by biblical ideas. If we're not careful, sometimes we we'll go at culture with misinformed ideas. Formed by biblical ideas, but misinformed and misshaped by our own presupp- presuppositions and battles. Now, there may be times, especially when the church is acting like Pharisees, more than like Pharisees and disciples, that culture may actually come closer to the ideals and principles of Jesus than me. I was taught, or was trained, of all always things that church is right and culture is wrong. But what I've found is as I've got older is, it's not always still so black and white. Sometimes there's some great things. Sometimes there's places where culture has an opportunity to point the church back to what we should be. If we approach this book, the book of the Bible, in in an attempt to excuse our sexual preferences or in an an attempt to condemn someone else's sexuality, we're coming at that book all wrong. This book is designed so that we can be with Jesus and become like Jesus and do what Jesus did. But if we're not careful, we can, can become a weapon that hurts and harms instead of heals. Let's pray but Jesus, thank you for your word. I don't always understand why some of this is in here. I feel like you could have over some of these parts and just give us a summary. I would like the Bible to be this nice, clean, cheeky, clean document that just avoids the messiness of humanity. But one of the things you are is painfully honest about human conditions. Whether it's the best of your disciples or the best of your servants, the best of your people, they all fail.